Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer here at Schaefer Vineyards. I think we've got a good one for you today. I'm talking with Chris Carpenter, winemaker for La Coya, Cardinal, Mount Brave, and La Jota here in the Napa Valley. And I know he's involved with all sorts of other things. I've known Chris for a long time, but I really don't know much about him outside the world of wine. So I've been looking forward to this one. We'll get right to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Taste. Doug Schaefer. I've got a um, special guest today. They're all special, but uh, this is one guy I've wanted to get in here for a long time because I really don't know him that well, even though our paths have crossed. It's Chris Carpenter from the Jackson Family Empire and La Coya and Cardinal and on and on and on. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. He's good to take the time. We're getting, getting ready to pick grapes pretty soon, so I appreciate him coming in. Um, I got to tell you, Chris, a few years ago, I never, I didn't, I never knew you. I never knew you around, and so I started. I run into you on these uh, Napa Valley vintner panels. There'd be these panels the vintners host if there's a group of uh, importers or trade from Japan or Germany in town. They have different seminars, and they they they'd round up four or five winemakers like Chris and myself to be on a panel to talk about Cabernet or Chardonnay or something like that. So all of a sudden, I'm on these panels with four or five people, and one of them is this guy, Chris Carpenter, sitting down at the end of the table. And it's like, well, who's this guy? Where'd he come from? And um, But, you know, you'd have your chance to chit-chat about whatever your subject was. It's like, hey, he knows what he's talking about. This, I like what this guy's saying. So it's like, cool. But that was it. And, and now I've been doing some research on you. This is what's fun about my job. And... Uh, You've been around for a while, but before you got to Napa, born and raised, where, where, did, where did it all start? I was a very young man in Boston and did my formative years in Chicago. Okay. So most, most of my, uh, the years that I think helped to create who I am were mostly Chicago based. I grew up in a small town about 40 miles northwest of the city called Cary, Illinois. I know Cary. I know yeah. Cary. But was, but born in Boston. Yeah. And your folks, uh, were they in the business? Food food business? Wine business? No, not at all. Uh, one of the ways I got myself through the University of Illinois in Champaign was tending bar. And when I left with a degree in biology, I moved up to Chicago with no job. So... I continued to attend bar up there, and many of my new friends, as I was progressing through uh, growing up in that city, uh, living that kind of life, uh, were people that worked in the restaurant industry. Got it. And that being a, a city of such magnitude in terms of the restaurant biz and and the kind of stimulation that you can find in a, in a town like that, uh, I was I was starting to get into it. And cool. uh, one of my buddies worked at an Italian restaurant down in Little Italy, a place called Tufano's, which is a great, if you ever get the chance to go there, it's, it's old school Italian, it. red and white checker tables. You got a table full of cops next to a table full of Chicago <laughs> Bulls, next to a bunch of yuppies, next to a bunch of blue collar guys, next to some uh, people in in uh, the other side of law. Uh, and this guy was uh, really into wine about two or three years ahead of the rest of our gang of restaurant people and started turning us on to wine. And that became something that uh, I started gaining a passion for. I was looking for something to do beyond uh, the... Um, 
bartending work that I was doing and and something I could combine my my degree with. And, Got it. And winemaking was that. But I'm, I'm kind of curious because, again, did a little research on you. But as a kid, you moved around. A little bit. Yeah. Yep. D.C.? Well, no. My parents yeah. left Chicago and moved to D.C., and I stayed behind. Ah. So I finished up. My mom and I were alone for many years, and okay. she bounced around a lot. So we had – I was – the new kid in like seven or eight different schools at any one time. So high school was Cary because I was southwest side. I was Hinsdale. So would you go to South or Central? I went to Central. All right. I was Central and uh, I graduated way before you. You're a young man. So, but you played ball. So you're playing ball in high school? Football? I did. I did. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, on to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Yeah. And you played there. And you, and you played there. I did. Big Ten. Big Ten ball, so you were back when Illinois actually had a team. They they still yeah. have a team and they they're doing team, fine. They don't, they don't play that well. <laughs> well, I'm curious though, what position? I was a defensive end. Defensive end, yeah. Because you're six five now, so uh, I think I saw a picture of you somewhere in back in the day, and you were. I was six five back then too. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you stopped growing. Oh man. Um, so. And degree in biology, right? Yeah. And then uh, on to M to Chicago, where you got your MBA. Correct. And so you're tending bar, starting to get into wine. And I and I also had a day job, and that day job was going really well. And what was that? Yeah, I I sold blood and urine analyzers to hospital laboratories, uh, and it was a good. I worked for a great company. I I was doing well, and I was at that point after getting the MBA where I had to make a decision. They wanted me to move into their corporate office, and though the opportunity financially, career-wise, with this great company was, was wonderful, it just wasn't something that I wanted to do the rest of my life. And, you know, this I took a trip out here, in fact. Uh, one of my buddies had moved to the Bay Area, and I, I needed to get my head on, and right. I did a walkabout uh, in California from the so southern uh, coast up to north northern California, and he took a day off of work. We came up to wine country, hung out, and you know, you're when you're in the wine country and you're seeing all of the excitement around this business, you're talking to people in tasting rooms about right. what they're doing and, and what the winemakers are doing. You can get caught up in that. We've all... We've all gotten right. caught up in that in one way or another. And um, I started putting the th putting it all together. Like, wow, here is a, a pursuit that I'm already interested in more from a hedonistic standpoint. Just from the Chicago, yeah. the, the Italian restaurant and all yeah. that. And, and it's it's intimately tied in with the sciences that I wanted to get back to. Uh, you know, I was using my degree to a certain uh, in a certain sense, because a lot of the equipment that I sold were disease state management right. type of di uh, diagnostics. Um, and it was creative. And I really wanted to get into something creative. And having uh, no idea how to do it, when I got back to Chicago, I was, I was starting to freak out. Fortunately, I was subscribed to, I don't know, Food and Wine or Bon Appetit or right, something, yeah. something appeared in one of those magazines about the program at Davis. And it was probably a month or two after I got back from Chicago and I read this article. I'm like, there it is. There's my path. I was almost 30. So I was getting a little paranoid about where I was going in my life. And uh, I applied, was accepted, and moved up. You're 30 years old. You've been working 
bartending, work in restaurants, selling medical devices, get a epiphany, yep. more or less. My, same thing happened to my dad, but he was 48. And you and you apply to Davis, you get in. Did you apply like, as an undergrad or a master's? No, I, was, I, I have a master's from Davis. And as a bio student, I was, it was much easier for me right. to go in through the viticulture program. So back then, it was you uh, you made a choice. You were either viticulture or enology. They've since combined They've since it. combined them, right. Uh, and for me, the path was much easier. And it was a real serendipitous choice because hmm. ultimately, as you know, Doug, it's all about the grapes. What we do in the winery is is five to 10% of the effect that we have Good on point. the bottle true, of wine. True. So learning the grape side of it was, was key and has been key to my success. Uh, and then I stayed an extra six months and took all the enology courses and, and was able to train myself on the uh, uh, winemaking side of it. But uh, yeah. What was that like moving from Chicago to California? You know, it was good and bad. We, yeah. Napa at that time, in 1995 when I moved out here, there was one restaurant in downtown Napa. It was Don, Don Perico. It was a family Mexican restaurant. You moved out in 95. Yeah. So there's nothing going on in Napa. Were you living in Davis or living here? No, I lived in Napa. Oh, so, so you're commuting to Davis. Okay. Well, we did because my wife didn't know what, she was going to be the breadwinner. So we didn't know where she was going to work. She's a designer. Got it. Uh, so we didn't know if she was going to work in San Francisco or up in Sacramento or wherever. And Napa was a perfect like middle point between those between two. Between San places. Francisco and Davis, and, right? And ultimately, she had to. She was the one who had to drive our financial situation during that time. Uh, and we landed in Napa. Uh, had a great had a great house, but had absolutely no idea the the speed by which our uh, lifestyle would slow down. Yeah, <laughs> Napa, Napa. You know, Napa today as most everyone knows, has really changed. But, uh, you know, we moved out here in 73. Oh, yeah. Well, let so me you, tell you about Napa, man. <laughs> and, and, but it's kind of stayed sleepy for a long, long time. It's not anymore. It's not anymore. So what's great now is you can walk downtown or, or take an Uber or whatever, and you can have a full night in downtown right. Napa. Back then, that wasn't the case. So you were married. But tell me, Tina's your wife. Tina's Where'd, wife. where'd you guys meet? At the University of Illinois. Okay. Yeah. And so she stayed with you all those years in Chicago. And yeah, I don't know what I did to fool her, but she's still with me. Uh, that's great, but um, that's pretty wild. I mean, because you were 30. I moved out here when I was 17. Hey, I was going along for the ride. You know, yeah. you know, dad and mom paid the rent, and I didn't know what, what was going on. But, uh, um, you know, the Chicago is such a wonderful town. It, that had to be a shock. I mean, because all the, the fun, great people, Well, and I worked, do, at a, I worked at a music club before we came. So I, I worked at an Irish bar for five years and then I worked at this music club for four before moving out here. And so all of the different stimulus that's in Chicago, it's a great cosmopolitan city, one yes. of the greatest. Uh, and I, and we, we surely miss it and we still do. In fact, we were talking a little bit about the Bears game. I yeah. missed going to Bears games during, the, during this time of the year. I don't miss the 50 below in the wind chill. <laughs> I don't miss the winters. Uh, you know, Chicago's a great city unto itself. And then you have the suburbs. And then you have cornfields. Right. You know, California, where we live, it's unbelievable. We yeah. live in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Uh, we And we have Tahoe two and a half hours away, the Bay an hour away, the ocean an hour away. We've got Carmel, no, we've got Mendocino, we've got everything it's, here. It's great here. And, you know, making that transition, it was a little difficult first couple of right. years just from a 
you know, Tina's family was back there and our friends and our lifestyle, but we got used to it. Man, I, I remember going back the first time to sell wine, I think it was January and I had some overcoat, which was really, you know, thin and, you know, I'm back there and it's a cold day and I'm on the phone to the guy saying, you know, you sure you want to come back? It's really cold. It's 20 below us. Oh, hey man, I grew up in Chicago. I'm fine. So we're, you know, walking between appointments downtown and come around a corner one of those streets that opens up right to the lake and the wind hits you and it's like oh my goodness yeah. i forgot about this i think i realized i was a california boy at that point i have a daughter we encouraged my elder daughter to look at colleges in the midwest just right th there's something about the midwest that i think everybody needs to experience at one point or another from a living standpoint mm -hmm. and she's now a freshman at the university of wisconsin madison oh great great town it is great, great town, town. Uh, it's 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 a fabulous town and she's gonna she's gonna love it but she's a California kid, <laughs> and and she she said to me at one point, "Daddy, is it always this green here?" And oh. I paused and I said, "Yep, when it's not white, <laughs> you're gonna have a lot of fun come January, February." I've so, got my my kids go going up heading up to Seattle next week. He'll be a freshman. Oh yeah. And he right. said he's he he say he loves the rain, so he'll find out. Yeah. But what, uh, what school in uh, Seattle? U University of Washington. All right. Yeah, wow. It's gonna be a husky. Oh, yeah. wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great. That's a great university. School. Oh, he's when he's just dying to get to us. He says, "I, I got to get to a city." You know, he's grown up here in Napa Valley, once, yeah. so, which is super. So, good experiences. All right, so coming back, you're in California. You're living in Napa. You're commuting commuting to Davis, which from Napa is about an hour hour yeah. drive. So, you're going up every day or every every day. I yeah. loved it actually. Yeah. I, I I if I wasn't listening to NPR. I'd be, I'd have a stack of flashcards in, in the uh, <laughs> seat next to me that I'd be doing my studying as, as I was driving up to Davis. And it was also time to kind of put my head on and driving through the Central Valley, you know, that, that short stint up to Davis, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. There, you know, in that very, like you know, the, that agricultural beauty way. Yeah. Uh, and, and frankly, I was also tending bar at the time trying to help the, the family out at Trevenia. So oh, okay. I, I was able to make connections in the restaurant industry here in Napa and in the wine industry a couple of years before any of my colleagues did that were at Davis. And at the time working at Trevenia, which was one of the, it was really the only game in town right, at the time, uh, we had a fabulous wine list. And learning about food from Chirillo and his mm -hmm. staff, and then having that wine list, which was a which was a collection of about two thirds California, a third and Italian, some great Italian wines. We it, again, I was I was in tastings at Davis, and at tastings at Davis, everybody's talking about the flaws in wine. Right. Tastings that I was in with restaurant groups here in Napa, they were talking and at. Trevenia with the, with the group that we tasted with, it was about how does this wine go with food? Right. How do we how do we connect it with the paparadelli? How do we connect it with the gnocchi? And and having both of those things, I think, set me up later on in my winemaking to think about wine in a different way than a lot of winemakers were thinking about it at the time. And most of my colleagues have caught up over the years, but that gave me a little bit of an edge. I remember, you know. I'm not in a wine tasting group right now. I haven't been for years, and I think I—I I know why I stopped. Because I'll—I'll I'll be somewhere with trade people and mention, "Hey, I'm in this wine tasting group with six other winemakers: Chris Carlson, you know, Heidi Barrett, Elias Fernandez, you know, yeah. you know, good winemakers." 
and they go, wow, that must be cool. Yeah, we meet once a week and once a month and taste, you know, eight different Cabernets or Pinots or Sangioveses. Oh, that must be so cool. I said, I said, if you ever get invited to one of those tastings, don't go. And they say, why? I said, it's the most depressing evening with wine you'll ever spend in your life. And they go, why? I said, because we all sit around and we just bash these wines. Yeah. That one's got too much oak. That's got a little Brettanomyces. That's, that's, that's too acidic. They picked it wrong. It's just like... I stopped doing it because it was it, it was depressing. And it, it was, I'd rather, like you say, go to a restaurant and talk to just you know regular folks to talk about how the coolest wine is or not cool, and it's fun. Yeah, you know, it's I I don't I'm not into it as as I as I was as often as I did, but I did always learn something from it. You know, you, it's always good to kind of, from my perspective, to to learn about new flavors about new mm -hmm. techniques it does it does tend to get a little negative with winemakers yeah. whereas again with the restaurant people that i used to taste with it wasn't about that it was more about okay here's what this guy's doing how do we incorporate that into our list exactly and or into how we think about presenting this dish with a possible wine choice and it was great you know and then you'd go to these tastings at davis you know and everybody th was trying to position themselves as the smartest guy in the room at the time anyway <laughs> and it's that's, that's still going on yeah sure. and it's like you guys aren't even thinking about what ultimately wine should be about it's not it's not this technical uh, uh, melange that we're putting together it's it's a it's a part of dinner it's, it's a, a it, it's, it's a part of dinner it's not the dinner it's yeah. not it's not center stage no it's just right. over here on the side yeah you know good you gotta get back doug let's go let's i start think we should, we, should, we should start tasting <laughs> when we'll make some rules <laughs> you and me no <laughs> negative just, just two of us we'll do it over dinner yeah. um well okay i'm this is so mid-90s you're you're getting your master's you're living in napa you're married you're a bartender at trevinia I was up to my ears and alligators here at Schaefer. Elias and I were cranking. Things were going really well for us. But boy, we were busy. We were really busy. So that's why I never ran into you. I'm, but I bet you you probably made me a martini once or twice. I probably I, did. You probably did. Yeah, I still do. Good. Your dad comes in. At, and so I still work at the Rutherford Grill. Well, I was going to talk about it later. So yeah. tell us about that. Why are you you're still tending bar one night a week? One night a week. At Rutherford Grill. Yeah. yeah I, one, it's my night out. So I don't I don't go out and drink beers after right. work or or uh, you know yeah do other things. My night out is standing behind the bar at the grill, and I've had a lot of people over the years who have become friends as a, as a result of that who still come in and see me. Elias used mm -hmm. to come in. He doesn't come in on Fridays as much as he used to, but he used to be in there every other Friday. He'd be sitting there. Right. You come in, your dad still comes He's in. Your regular. dad comes in by himself and sits at the bar and has a, has a bite to eat and chats yep. with the people on either side of him. Uh, and it's it's you know, it's part, the Rutherford Grill, if, for those who have never been to the Rutherford right. Grill, if you're coming into town and you want to see um, a uh, host of winemakers, vineyard managers, the, the, the center of the social life at lunchtime, typically, in Napa Valley is the Rutherford Grill. And that place has that kind of magic. And, and as a as somebody who stands behind the bar, I can participate in it to the level that I want to, and I can go away and, you know, talk to other, other guests. And, you know, it's, it's always been in my blood and I, I enjoy it. So, so no, you're, uh, you, you know, you're quite famous for it. Everybody knows about Chris Tendon bar on Friday nights. 
That wasn't why I did it, but it, <laughs> you know, it, was, uh, it was part of me, who I am. Great. So after master's, you're, where'd you jump in? Where's, where'd you work? So internships. Well, uh, yeah, I, I did an internship at Domain Carneros on the, um, I was in the lab and in the cellar. Uh, I worked at Domain Chandon in the vineyard with one of my uh, viticultural uh, mentors, a woman named Ann Kramer, oh, uh, who was just a fabulous, uh, fabulous person. Got to interrupt. Okay, so Domain Carneros, was Don Carlson there? Yeah. He was Dan the winemaker. Carlson. Dan Carlson, yep. thank you, because our first harvest at Red Shoulder just across the street, Chardonnay, for the first three years, we didn't have enough press pressing capacity. He pressed it out for us. Oh yeah, right. So we picked it, took it over to those you guys at Domain Carneros. He pressed it out. We took the juice up here and it fermented it. Yeah. And then Ann Kramer, Ann Kramer, I went to I went to Davis with Ann Kramer. Did you really? And That's they had a crush on her forever. Did you? The sweetest uh, gal in the world. But I interrupted. So go ahead. No, no. Ann. And and she took me on to uh, oversee, or not to oversee, but to be part of her vineyard team in okay. the uh, vineyards in the Carneros. Okay. So I was doing PCA work, and I had one like three acre block that was my responsibility, and I learned a tremendous amount. She was a great teacher, right? And uh, and. Still, I, I hearken back to those days. Uh, I also worked at, at Antonori in Italy uh, before coming uh, back to the states. And how'd you get? How'd you get that? So UC Davis has okay. a program every year. There's a an intern chosen from amongst the ranks of the students at Davis, and that year was was. I was the one who had been chosen. Way to go. That uh, was awesome. That must have been great. It was, it was, it changed my life. You know, the way th Italians think about food and wine and, and, and the way Italians approach life in general, uh, at the time I had to learn how to slow myself down and not, and not have expectations that are completely American in bearing, uh, cause Italians don't move like that. Right. Uh, and, and that way of thinking has carried me to this day. I got back. Uh, my darling wife, who had uh, supported us for that three-ish years, was ready to start having babies and for me to go back to work. Time for you to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, you got uh, to go out and get a job. It's time. You know, no more. You get your master's written or your right. thesis written and let's move forward. And Davis has a um, job fair, as many universities do. And right. uh, I had two resumes uh, with me uh, for the the Jackson family wine table. And I went up to the guy who's standing behind the table and I said, this first resume, uh, could you pass on? Cause I know you have this grower relations position and grower relations are those guys that, that with, uh, some wineries who go out and buy fruit from outside growers, right. uh, they negotiate those contracts. They have to know about viticulture because they have to, they have to oversee that vineyard. And it's a pretty, it was an entry position right. and, and I wanted to get my foot in the door. I ultimately wanted to make wine, but I was just trying to get a job and Got get, it. get in there. The other resume I handed to the, the same guy, and I said, this resume, can you pass on to this guy named Marco DiGiulio? And oh, yeah, I know Mar Marco. Yeah. Marco at the time was making two great brands under Jackson Family Wines. He was making uh, Peppy Wines, which at that time was during the Calatal thing that we all tried. Yes. He was making Sangiovese, Barbera, um, Malvasia Bianco, uh, Tocai Frulliano. Malvasia Bianco, I remember that. So all these great Italian varieties, and I had just come from Italy. Right? And was he making them at Peppy? He was making them at Peppy. He was also uh, the winemaker for La Coya as... 
his predecessor at LaCroix, a gentleman named Greg Upton, had just passed. I so, Greg, so yeah. uh, Marco took over making LaCroix, which is high-end Cabernet. I got to interrupt. Please. Because Bob Pepe, did you ever know Bob oh, Pepe? Yeah, sure. Was a pal. Yeah. Because every night I'd drive home after finishing up harvest, you know, we'd, we'd pick during the day, so, you know, you wouldn't get off till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. I'd always stop by Pepe's winery on the way back, way home. Because he was always there because he had so much Sauvignon Blanc. He was, he'd be pressing all night. So I'd always stop and have a beer with Bob. But then they sold to Jackson Family, yep. and that's when so Marco took over. That's when Marco took over that, that the production of the of the Italian brands cool. and ultimately took over La okay. So the cellar that I worked in at uh, Antonori was the, it's called Santa Cristina Estate back mm-hmm. then. I think it's called Tianello Estate now. So it's where they were making the Salaya, the Tianello, all their high-end cabernets, then some of the great, Chianti Classicos that they make. And I was also involved in a whole bunch of experiments looking at other varieties that they were thinking about. One of those other varieties was Toraldigo, which I made over there and which Pepe was making. So anyway, I I hand the resume to the guy, can you pass this on to Marco DiGiulio? And he he reads the resume, he goes, Marco DiGiulio, huh? And I said, yeah. He goes, I'm Marco DiGiulio. (laughs) like, ah, it's good to meet you. Oh, that's funny. And he sees that I've made Toraldigo because I had it on my resume, what varieties I had made in uh, in Italy. And he, and he said, you made Toraldigo? I said, yeah. He goes, I just made Toraldigo for the first time. There's a there's a vineyard somewhere down on the central coast that, that grows Toraldigo, and that was one of the wines that Pepe was putting out. Toraldigo, for those that don't know, is just yeah. a, is an awesome variety from uh, Trentino. And in Trentino, it's typically made as a novella, which is the Italian's version of Beaujolais. Right. And there's a woman named, I think her name is... Um, I don't remember her first name. Her last name is Foradori. And she has been making it as an aged wine for some time. And okay. Marco was trying to do the same thing. And the Antonori. And, and not, not in, in other words, not in the Beaujolais style, in the just a, like a regular, regular, regular red, yeah, wine. red wine. Yeah, red wine. Toraldigo makes a great aged wine like that. So he comes from around the table and he's like, hey, how'd you do it? And I told him <laughs> how I pursued the Toraldigo. And then he told me how he pursued it. And we clicked. And he said, listen, man. I'm building a new winery. I need somebody to help me design the lab. Would that be something that you're interested in? I said, yeah. So he said, come by next Tuesday and we'll take a walk around and I'll show you what's up. And so I did. I came by next Tuesday and I walked into his office and sitting behind his desk was a poster, a big poster of John Coltrane. And I said, you're a Coltrane fan? And he goes, yeah, I'm a huge Coltrane fan. I go, I just bought a Love Supreme a couple of days ago, which is one of his masterpieces. And uh, we talked Coltrane for half hour, and by the end of the afternoon, I had the job. And I was working as at the time as his enologist and then ultimately his assistant winemaker. And as he and his colleague, I, I had a really great situation because not only was he the winemaker there, but Charles Thomas was the winemaker for Cardinal. And, and I was acting a great as He's a great winemaker. He's came out of Lindavi, right. So, so what, what facility were you guys at? We were all out of Pepin, which is now okay. Cardinal. Got it. Okay. So, uh, and so I was working for, for Marco, for Charles, and then they brought in another gentleman named Tom Peffer. And Tom uh, was overseeing the, the new Kendall Jackson facility that was being built. The really cool thing about working for these three guys was yeah. they all had their own way of approaching wine. Charles was very much 
keyed into the vineyard. And he worked with a guy named uh, Daniel Roberts. Dr. Yeah, Dr. I remember Daniel. Yeah. And they were, it was all about how to design vineyards to optimize fruit characters so mm-hmm. that ultimately you'd be optimizing your wine. And so learning from, from that understanding. Tom Peffer was a science geek. So he, he could, he knew biochemical pathways. He knew chemistry. He knew how to, how to, look at wines from the analysis and know where they were going. So mm-hmm. having that being taught to me at that time was, was fantastic as well. Because ultimately, you don't learn how to make wine at Davis. What you learn know, at Davis is the science. Yeah. You learn how to diagnose things, but you don't, you don't learn how to then actually put it into you practical don't, It's context. the practical thing. Just you know, almost like just about anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. And then Marco was was the kind of hippie winemaker. <laughs> don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Native yeast fermentations. Just don't let it screw up. You know, don't make rash decisions. And 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 combining all these these schools of thought into my winemaking, I, I you know I couldn't have asked for a better situation to be in. So you're with those three guys. This is in the mid to late 90s. Yeah. And you, so all of a sudden you end up being head winemaker? Mm-hmm. Well, as, as greener paths presented themselves to them, mm. uh, they, I would assume uh, their, their roles. In, Got it. In, in, with the exception of Tom. Tom, I didn't take any, over any winemaking that he was doing. Uh, but uh, Charles, or Marco left first, and I, I was uh, asked to take over La Coya brand. Uh, Charles left a year later, and, and I was asked to take over the Cardinal brand. We've acquired, in in the time uh, after, we acquired uh, the La Hoda Vineyard and Winery, and that's about, the vineyards are about a mile down from the Keys Vineyard on Howell Mountain, and they asked if I would oversee that. And then we created a Mount Brave after we had acquired the Chateau Patel property from Marquette and Jean Noel for Mount, on Mount Veter. On Mount Veter. So let me, you know, I'll take a stab at this. You help me out. So basically, you've got four different brands, Napa brands. Yep. Is that safe to say? Yeah. That that you're involved with. Yes. Cardinal, La Hota, La Coya, Mount Brave. Correct. Got it. And you've got how many facilities handling those four? Three. Three. Yeah. So your your role, your position is kind of like um, the grand poobah of winemaking for these four brands. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how does it work? Do you have winemakers at each place? No. Tell them? No, I have a. It's me. It's and you. my team, and we run around in trucks and go make wine. It's a pain in the ass, but it's great, uh, you know, because I work. Cardinal is 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 our home base, and that's where right. we store all our barrels. And it's right on Route Twenty Nine, and all our marketing people and our salespeople and right. uh, all of that, and then our guests. They all center themselves around there, and uh, it's it's a wonderful facility. We've redesigned it over the years to really accommodate my winemaking style and the kind of varieties that we're working with. La Hoda is up on Howe Mountain and it's completely isolated. Right. It, when we're up there, it's just us making wine. You're surrounded by ponderosa pines and redwoods and this historic winery that's been there since 1889 right. and that we're still operating out of. Uh, and, and it's, it, you know, again, driving up there and then dealing with that when we're up there is 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 somewhat of a logistics uh, challenge. But but it's also great just being up there making wine. It's and peaceful. That, it's that's the exact word for it. It is peaceful. Going up, you know, Howe Mountain is is relaxing. Yeah. You know, you know, I ride my bike up there. It's just it's yeah. really nice. 
It's a good break. And then we bought uh, Terra Valentine a couple of years back uh, up on Spring Mountain. And okay. Koya needed a home. So we've redesigned that not only from a winemaking standpoint, but from a, a, a guest standpoint. Uh, the, they built a beautiful tasting room up there. And now Lacoya has a space that uh, we're, we've fermented up there probably 50% of the vintages that we've, okay. um, that we've had last year, we were set to start fermenting up there and then the fires rolled in and, and kind of put a kibosh yeah. on that as we tried to circle the wagons around Cardinal. Uh, but you know, it's, it, it keeps us busy and it keeps it interesting too. We're not always in the same place. Right. So, okay. But it seems like there, it's mostly mountain fruit. Is it mostly, are, have you been pigeonholed as a mountain fruit guy? Is that your, is that your claim to fame? I've been pigeonholed you, as you, that, but, but you, in a good is way. Is that good with you? Is yeah, that, okay. All right. Although if you want to sell me any fruit around no, here, no, 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 I'm sorry, buddy. Yeah. I was like, I wonder if I'll be able to get fruit from. I, I like mountain fruit too. Yeah. It's staying right we'll, here. We'll, we'll, we'll change. We'll swap. We'll, um, we'll talk about that in our tasting group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so one of the, one of the, I think, for a foresight that Jess Jackson had was the quality of the fruit that these mountain vineyards could produce. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there are challenges in the mountains. We have soils that aren't very uh, friendly. You've got different angles to the sun. There's not a lot of water up there, and the soils don't hold on to the water. But the results that you get from a a cultural standpoint in terms of the quality of the fruit and then ultimately how that translates into wine for me it's it's the top of of what we do here in napa uh and from and again i'm, I'm slightly biased and i've i've enjoyed getting to know these terrains to be part of them to see the differences in, differences in them we have 16 sub appellations five of which are are mountain mm -hmm. and they're and they're each really singular just as stag's leap right where, where we're sitting now is singular that i think is is worth celebrating which we all do to a certain degree uh, but it's also fabulous i keep using that word i gotta stop it's it's, it's a good uh, word yeah <laughs> it's it's just it it from a learning standpoint, I'm constantly learning. And one of the great things about the wine industry, I think that we'd all agree on, is there's there's always something new to figure out. You know, the, Whether it's a combination of barrels to wine and all the different coopers and what they're doing, or the different soil types that we have to deal with, or the growing conditions, or fires that we have to figure out yeah. now that are becoming the norm. Uh, yeah. It's all of this. Technology, irrigation technology, you know, the, the equipment stuff we have now at the crush pad we didn't used to have. Yeah. It's incredible. But listen, hillside fruit, mountain fruit, you know, you don't have to preach to me, buddy. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm in your, I love it. I'm on that bandwagon all day long. Yeah. Well, there's nothing better, you know, and, and to be sitting there with a ferment, a fermenter that's pumping over, it hits about, Oh, you're at about 15, 14, 13 bricks, and all of a sudden it changes, and all of a sudden it becomes, I, I, I can't describe it. And I've tried to so many times, but you, you know the moment, and it's just I like, it used, used to happen for me around two in the morning, because we didn't have really good control of our tanks temperature-wise. You couldn't control temperature remotely like you can now, so yeah. you can kind of chill it down so it doesn't... So last night I would do these crazy hours and take shifts. And it used to happen around two in the morning. I'd be, and I'd, I'd taste it and go, I'd turn around and yell. I'd go, hey, Elias. Well, he was, he's not there because he's at home in bed. But it was that moment where it's like, you got to taste number 23. It just, you know, it just, it just happened. Yeah. And that's why we do yeah. it, right? Yeah. For those moments. It's beautiful. Love it. Um, 
Okay, so napping, so you're a busy guy. So just to make yourself a little busier, I hear you're doing something in Australia now? I do. What's yeah. going on? No, just on top of everything. So we, <laughs> uh, Jackson Family Wines bought the uh, Hickenbotham Vineyard in McLaren Vale uh, right. in 2012. And on that vineyard, there's quite a bit of Cabernet. Our ownership wanted to see what I could do with that Cabernet, given it that it's um, a different place, and, right. and but also given that it's a vineyard that has some similarities to what we do in the mountainsides here. It does have ele elevation. It does have a, a soil profile that, that has so, some similarities. Uh, and I was, at the time, looking for a new challenge, and I've always wanted to go to Australia uh, just, nice. just from a yeah. you know, visiting standpoint. And I landed at this <laughs> vineyard, and I was floored by what I had in front of me and what what the potential was for the kind of wines that we could produce. And in an area that's very different than Napa. I mean, McLaren Vale is more, reminds me more of like McMinnville up in Oregon in its okay. kind of vibe and where it's at in the wine industry. And the people there are just fantastic. And I'm 10 minutes from one of the great beaches of the world, <laughs> two, two and a half kilometer long beach, and at four o'clock in the afternoon, there's 10 people on it. Oh. You know, so it's it has all these wonderful things, and and the wines that we're producing are are incredible, and they're different. You know, they're not, it's not Napa Valley, and, and part of, I think, what we all strive to do is create wines that really speak to the place to the place right being produced from and that was you know learning about australian wines and how aussies think about cabernet and and the way that they have produced cabernet over the years i, I took a trip out to the margaret river while i was there right. one year just to get a sense of that because that's really one of the hot spots for cabernet in australia and i would recommend to anybody who's interested in traveling wine regions in the world make it to margaret river it's got it's, it it's it's unbelievable, but McLarenville is unbelievable as well. And these were these are wines that I've I've, I've taken a lot of, um, I, I, and uh, there's a, there's a lot of heart and soul in these things, and uh, it's from just a great part so of the world. So you get down, so you're in, you're overseeing the vineyard and the winemaking down there, or just or just one or the other. So the great part yeah, how, of this, how's it, how's it work? Yeah, it's it's more like I, I act almost as a consulting winemaker okay. down there. I have a team that has that runs a winery at a, we we've had a brand in a winery there since 2001 called Yungara. Okay. And Yungara makes arguably some of the best Grenache on the planet. Oh nice. Incredible wines. Uh, so they've got a group of people that are are dedicated to the winemaking. We have a vineyard staff that has been farming a Yungara for a while again mostly Grenache and Syrah or Shiraz. And, and I have helped them understand Cabernet growing at the Hickenbotham Vineyard. Okay. So I'm involved to the degree that I would be, this is, you, know, you don't prune Cabernet as you would Shiraz. This is how we would prune Cabernet in this kind of environment. The leafing, this is how you, because leafing Shiraz is very different than leafing Cabernet. Right. This is how you're going to approach this. So we've gotten to that point. They've, They've embraced it, the, the guys that I work with down there, and they've they're they're on it now. So a lot of it is me just going in, making sure that the fruit is 
where I want it, just as we do here, right. uh, how it tastes, when I'm picking, how it's fermented. I utilize some of my techniques that I've learned mm-hmm. here down there, uh, and then just making sure that it gets that it gets through that process and in the barrel. So I'm down and, there. And timing, yeah, when he's down there, timing wise, because the harvest is six March. Months, March, okay. mostly March, maybe a week or two into April for five to six weeks, and then I go back a week uh, in July and then a week in January. Nice. And they've, they've accepted the, the yank coming over, huh? Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I know a few Aussies. I mean, you know, they're, they're pretty strong-willed, proud guys. They you are know? very and, proud. Yeah. And I've been very cognizant of that. Good you know, for you. Because yeah. nothing drives me crazier when, and I apologize to all my French colleagues, when the <laughs> French come into Napa and everybody thinks they're just, they couldn't possibly do wrong because they're French making wine. Well, you know, I didn't want to be that guy going to Australia. I wanted to. I wanted to uh, learn as much as I could from these guys that have been working right. there and know the land and know the the climate and and have an idea of the style and the approach to wine. And then you know work in some of my sensibilities mm-hmm. around it. And it's worked out really well. I've made some great friends down there, and uh, I, I've I've become part of that community. And it's really hard for me to leave. It, it's hard for my wife to be here by herself. So right. um, I, I, I can't stay down there, but it is some, I do consider it home. Oh, you know? that's nice. So Jackson family has wineries all over California, all over the world. Uh, any other involvement in other countries or is just Australia? The just one Australia. Australia. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Um, so uh, another big part of your life, music. Yes. Where did that start? Well, I've always been into music, uh, and it's always driven my my zeitgeist, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the places that I worked before I left uh, Chicago was this music club called Shubas. Okay. And Shubas, at the time, we had bands that would come through there, like Kebmo came through there, and Dave Matthews, and this is a small club, right. would come through there, uh, Tori Amos, just a host of these people. And you're, the music is such a, a innate uh, um, part of, I think, all of our lives. And some, mm-hmm. of, some of us, you know, see it as background, some of us are, are more into it from a detailed perspective. And I just, I've always enjoyed the process of music, the in, the emotions that it stirs, the uh, development of style and sound, and it's it's something that continues to drive me. We were talking about um, Andy and my relationship with right. Andy, your your PR person here. He uh, he and my uh, or his son and my daughter performed together in the Napa Valley Youth Symphony, and seeing kids learn about music and develop as musicians has been something that I've been involved in for the last few years and helping the, the youth symphony to stay a, a viable nonprofit in Napa and, and to help kids further educate themselves. Yeah, you're, you're very involved in that and people should know how much you do for that. You spend a lot of time. And by the way, you don't forget about me when you need donations, all right? Call I, me up. I, I will not. I, I'm writing this down <laughs> mentally. I'll write that down. <laughs> no, no, happy to do it. Well, what's so cool about the Youth Symphony in Napa, you know, they get to play at Bottle Rock. 
Yeah. I mean, how cool is that? Well, that's one of the, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do with the youth symphony is not only teach these kids about music and higher levels of music, but where music can take them. Right. You know, and what what opportunities it presents itself. Every year we bring in a guest artist. This past year we had Delfeo Marcellus, one of the great trombonists from from uh, New Orleans. We had Angel Romero from the from the very famous Romero guitar playing family play with them. Uh, we had Elizabeth Pitcairn who owns the uh, Red Violin who came out and and was one of our guest artists. And they've gotten the opportunity to play with these incredible musicians. We one year we took them to Carnegie Hall. They played at Carnegie Hall for oh, man. this That's incredible. Collection of of uh, audience and and other musicians, uh, and that you know something that will resonate with them forever. Uh, and par- you know part of that is bottle rock. Right. I mean, they they open. <laughs> they in fact were the opening band for bottle rock when it first started. They were the first. Uh, Right. musical group to play they opened for macklemore so that that particular <laughs> concert they had five thousand people and they thought they were the king of swing That's cool uh the, we now have a little bit less of a um popular time slot but it's still really cool it's still really cool. i mean these kids 20 years from now will be able to say yeah i played bottle rock, I played bottle rock. Damn right. <laughs> you know, so, when they're taking their kids yeah, to the show yeah, exactly that's great um slow food movement you were involved in that for a while. Is that still happening? Slow food is still around. Uh, can, I'm not, can you tell us a little bit about it? I'm, yeah. A lot of people might not know about it. So Slow Food was a organization that stemmed from a moment in history in Italy when McDonald's was uh, threatening to open a store at, close to the Spanish Steps in Rome. And a group of journalists, food hmm. journalists, uh, were up in arms about <laughs> this Affront to the culture of Italy and right. and their food culture, and they protested that uh, opening. And ultimately, McDonald's opened the store, but it started a bit of momentum behind the idea that food was being assaulted on many different levels. Right, uh, culturally, uh, American style food mm-hmm. was was taking over and fast food was uh, becoming something that was ubiquitous the world over and it was it was starting to impact other cultures other food cultures uh, the food system and how agriculture was being promoted uh, it was starting to devastate the planet and probably still mm-hmm. does to a very great degree. The number of foods that were available, the diversity of food that was available was starting to uh, be uh, impacted. Mm-hmm. So food was looking at all of these things and, and trying to remind people that food is not just fuel, that it's part of culture, it's part of our health, it's part of the planet's health, and that if we forget that, then we're in danger of of losing something that's very special from a from a sensorial standpoint, right. from a health standpoint, and from a um, from a this experiential standpoint. Mm-hmm. And and they organized and have uh, created chapters around the world where they look at different issues within the food system, whether okay. it's what what's the difference between organic and biodynamic and how does that impact a piece mm-hmm. of land? Or in fact, I just got a message today 
or two days ago about the pawpaws are ready in uh, Virginia. And pawpaws are this unique fruit that I think it's like Virginia, North Carolina, and maybe South Carolina. And a lot of pawpaw trees were going away. Uh, and once the pawpaws are gone, they're gone. They're gone. Right. right? There's nobody else growing them. Gravenstein apples here in our area was another one. Gravenstein mm-hmm. apples have been impacted by vineyards now over in Sonoma County uh, quite drastically for the last 20 years. And there's very few Gravenstein uh, orchards left. Once Gravensteins are gone, you know, they're they, gone. They're gone. Right. And so there's, they've created markets to help sustain some of these products uh, by way of a project called the ARC project and um, those that's just one example we've done they're, they're involved in all different sorts of food activism great so, and, that, and that continues the slow food organization continues without my participation I I uh, got to a point where I sat on the uh, national board we oversaw 50,000 members nationally I was involved in a lot of the uh, change uh, with some of the direction in our strategies here mm-hmm. in, in the United States. And, and just, I worked really hard for slow food for a lot of years and just at about, I, I needed to step back from that and allow some other people to do that work. And then the Napa Youth Symphony came calling right. as far as sitting on their board. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years now. You're a busy guy. Yeah. yeah it's, well, you're, you know, it's, we've got... I'm one of those guys that it's hard for me to say no. You know, don't, don't write that I, down. I won't, th- I, you know, I'm not going to write that down. But uh, between football, music, wine, food, great marriage, a couple of beautiful girls, congratulations. You are, you are the Renaissance guy of the Napa Valley. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm just a crazy guy in the Napa Valley. No, yeah, you know, I mean, good... Life's too short. There's so much out there that uh, I, I still, there's 20 things I still have yet to do that I want to do, and uh, and I will do them, I hope, at some point. It's just, there's, there, and there's so much to give back, too, mm-hmm. you know? I've been very fortunate in, in some of the things that have happened to me in my life, and I'm, I, I want others to feel that fortune. If I can provide those, those opportunities to them, I'll do that. Good for you. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming by. Thank you. Finally good to sit down and catch up and get to know each other. Well, we'll be getting to know each other even better with our tasting group. Our tasting group. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send you an email. Thanks again. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Carpenter. It was great to learn where he came from and what makes him tick. He's one of those winemakers who combines all the science with a lot of heart and soul, and it shows up in his wines. If you get a chance, check out wines from La Coya, Cardinal, or some of the other brands he works with. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. Thanks very much for listening and for all the great emails many of you have sent. We'll see you next time.